Welcome back to Playing Crash Diaries with me, your host and pilot, Des Latham. This is the series that looks at aviation accidents and investigates how these actually sometimes help improve commercial aviation safety, ironically. Episode 16 is all about the mystery of MH370. I'll explain later how this mystery has led to a few major changes in the airline industry, particularly the reporting over oceans and how tracking technology is being improved. This episode is fraught because we just don't know what happened to Malaysian flight MH370 and many pilots would say any sort of scientific conclusion is going to be a jump to conclusion. However, I'm going to take you through this event again and describe what the likely scenario was on that terrible morning back in March 2014. Part of what we do as aviators is to know the truth about risk, then act accordingly. In this case, we have some truths and then we have deception. Unfortunately, I'm going to explain how the deception involved aviation officials in Malaysia who treated both the Chinese and their own citizens shoddily after flight MH370 disappeared. This compounded an already difficult situation. As I previously outlined, Malaysia's aviation sector is a seething mass of government interference, full of patriarchs who appear to worry more about losing face than losing passengers. Malaysia suffers from what we call cadre deployment, those ruling party-linked relatives of someone in power who has dropped into a scientific endeavor with not the first clue about how aviation works, nor how they should apply themselves within the sector. Then, when things go wrong, they think shutting down the truth makes sense, which is the direct opposite of how to fix a broken system. This is not aimed at citizens of that beautiful country of Malaysia. Rather, it's aimed directly at ramshackle nature of how aviation has been managed in the country. I will show you, in the case of MH370, there was a distinct lack of understanding about crucial issues like prompt action, search and rescue, technical descriptions about how aeroplanes work, worsened by a fraternity of yes-men who basically preferred deliberate obfuscation when they were confronted by bereaved relatives. If you think my comments are unduly harsh, please listen to what I'm going to describe and make up your own mind as a reasonable person. So let's go through the facts that are not in dispute, including the hapless Malaysian government response. Flight MH370 was a Boeing 777-200ER on a scheduled flight operating between the Malaysian capital Kuala Lumpur and Beijing in China that disappeared on the 8th of March 2014 with 239 people on board, 227 passengers, 12 crew. The pilots last made voice contact with air traffic control at 0119 Malaysian Standard Time when it was over the South China Sea less than an hour after takeoff. This was precisely at a reporting point. How convenient. It disappeared from air traffic controllers' radar screens three minutes later. As it appeared, both ACARS and the transponder were switched off, but was being tracked by military radar as it suddenly turned in a southwesterly direction. It turned steeply left or north first, then turned again to the southwest in a maneuver which takes some skill or the plane either stalls at that altitude or goes into a spiral dive. At the time that the transponder and ACARS stopped functioning, the military radar followed the plane until 0135. That's eight minutes after the turn, when it was flying at 35,700 feet on a 231 degree magnetic heading with a ground speed of 496 knots. The military radar track shows that the plane then flew back over northern Malaysia, its altitude fluctuating between 31,000 and 33,000 feet. The Boeing 777 then turned steeply to the northwest and flew over the Andaman Sea between Malaysia and Indonesia. And that's where the last primary radar signal was picked up at 
8.22 in the morning. As the plane headed towards the Nicobar Islands, that's 200 kilometers north of Banda Aceh province in Indonesia. At that stage, it was flying at 29,500 feet and at around 490 knots. Apparently, it appeared to be flown by hand as the altitude was changed by more than 4,000 feet over a few minutes. Either that, or the autopilot had been coded incorrectly and was jumping about, which is unlikely. We need to ask a few technical questions. Why did the pilot switch off the transponder and ACAR simultaneously or within seconds at the precise point that they were required to change frequency and report to Vietnamese air traffic? This is such a coincidence that even though lacking correlation with other data, you have to ask, who was so well briefed that they knew to switch off the tracking information at the point of handover? How could someone in the back of the plane know this unless they were carrying GPS devices and then they had to make their way into the flight deck Break down the door, overpower those inside, all after the captain, whose voice has been positively identified, had just announced that the flight was at a reporting point. Think about this logically. It's almost impossible that seconds later, the transponder was switched off along with ACARS. It had to have been one of the pilots who cut the communication, I'm afraid. Whomever did this could have also bought themselves a few minutes before Vietnam ATC realized MH370 had been handed over to them and was not attempting to make contact. As we'll see, those few minutes actually turned into almost half an hour. At least three minutes would elapse before the Vietnamese would have become concerned because that's the aviation rule. Those three minutes allowed the pilot to turn the plane towards Malaysia if they were trying to evade detection. It was dark, and the navigation and other lights could have been switched off, making it impossible to see at that altitude. This is where the lack of attention to detail begins to hurt both Vietnamese and Malaysian air traffic controllers. The last reporting point was reached at 19 minutes past 1 in the morning, where pilots say goodbye to the Malaysians and hello to the Vietnamese. This should happen immediately or within a minute or three. Yet the Vietnamese waited almost 20 minutes at 1.38am before they contacted Malaysian air traffic saying they couldn't raise MH370. At 1.38, MYT Ho Chi Minh Area Control Center contacted Kuala Lumpur Area Control Center to query the whereabouts of Flight 370 and informed them that they had not established verbal communication with the flight, which was last detected by radar at Waypoint Batod. That's over the South China Sea between the two countries. They continued phoning each other for another 20 minutes as the mystery deepened. At first, Malaysia thought the plane was over Cambodian airspace to the west of Vietnam. The Boeing had actually turned the opposite direction and at times flew over the southern border of Thailand where it meets Malaysia's northern territories. We do have a tiny bit of data about what happened next. The plane's Rolls-Royce engines were pinging the Inmarsat satellite every hour with information. The problem is, this only provides a single point of data, not four like GPS systems, so investigators could only see where it was on a line of latitude but not whether it was north or south of anywhere but they did have milliseconds of time to work with. The secondary ACARS is a measure of the transmission time to and from the airplane, measuring the plane's distance from the satellite. Because it's a single bit of data, it can't pinpoint that single location, but rather all equidistant locations, a roughly circular set of possibilities. Think trigonometry. Given the range limits of MH370, the near circles can be reduced to arcs across the world, but only read hourly. The most important arc was the seventh and last one, or the last hour, defined by a final handshake 
tied in complex ways to fuel exhaustion and the failure of the main engines. The seventh arc stretches from Central Asia in the north to almost Antarctica in the south. It was crossed by MH370 at 8.19am Kuala Lumpur time. Calculations of likely flight paths place the airplane's intersection with the seventh arc and therefore its endpoint in Kazakhstan if the airplane turned north or in the southern Indian Ocean if it turned south. It was agreed that Kazakhstan was unlikely because the Boeing would have flown through quite a bit of military radar space. So it was decided correctly as we now know that MH370 followed the southern arc. But that's a vast area. What happened? Like many aviators, I followed the story closely. And after many years of investigation, it appears that the pilot or pilots purposefully flew the plane out of range of commercial air traffic control, turned the plane southwestly, and then flew it as far into the deep Indian Ocean as possible before it ran out of fuel, whereupon it landed in the ocean. But I'm going to explain that the plane was more than likely put into a glide, and the pilot or pilots then floated the 777 onto an oily sea, with little wind and virtually no wave activity at that time would have caused very little breakup. All the parts we found had been relatively large. When Air France crashed into the sea, only a part of the tail was found intact. Everything else had been pulverized. Not in this case, which indicates either the flapper on detached during a high-speed dive, or it broke off after the aircraft plunged into the water. There were just too many large pieces from the wings and fuselage that showed up later to say the plane had plunged at hundreds of knots straight into the ocean, sending millions of tiny bits of plane over a large area. Why was the flaperon virtually unscathed when it washed up on the shores of Réunion months later? Another question many have asked is, why didn't passengers notice the plane turning so steeply? When the initial turn was made, it was what's called a steep turn. Anyone with even a basic history of flying would have put up their hand and asked the cabin crew what was going on. Most of us believe that's because the person flying the plane switched off the pressurization system after donning their own oxygen mask, which then caused everyone to pass out from hypoxia and probably died very quickly afterwards. Folks, there are only two possibilities when you hear what happened once the full details of the plane's movements are analyzed. First, that an individual or more than one person reset the flight computer, switched off the transponder and tracking system, killed the pilots, then allowed the plane to fly itself southwest, whereupon it ran out of fuel and crashed. Second, that one or both pilots decided for whatever reason to kill everyone on board, then put the plane into a place where it would take a lot of luck to stumble across it using submersibles. I'm afraid there are no other possibilities, and I'm going to explain why. This is not an easy podcast to deliver, as there are family members grieving because there is nobody, there is only mystery, not to mention the pilots' families who have defended their loved ones from all criticism. As an aviator, we're used to the phrase pilot error, which unfortunately is to blame in most commercial aviation accidents. Made worse in this instance by Malaysia's notorious approach to truth and information and terribly damaging reports about the captain who was having severe marital problems and about to lose his children in an acrimonious divorce. Obviously speculation centered on him, but more about this in a while. Let's take this bit by bit. Why did the transponder and ACARS disappear from air traffic control radar at the same time? Transponders sent information about planes' altitude, direction, and speed constantly and are provided this data by the flight computer. So how do you switch off a transponder in a Boeing 777-200ER? Well, it's simple. You flick a switch. ACARS is a completely different baby. 
Transponders are accessible for a number of reasons. On the ground, they tend to cause radio interference with so many planes around, taxiing, taking off, and so on. When pilots are cleared onto the runway for takeoff, part of the drill is to turn on the transponder and in propeller-driven planes that I fly, to check the fuel boost pump is on and the strobe light is turned on. We have a little mantra called lights, camera, action, which my instructor hated, by the way. Lights are the strobe, camera is the transponder, and action is the fuel boost pump. At the same time, ATC picks up the transponder number, which is a four-digit number. Usually when flying in the circuit, it's 2000, for example, but could be any four-digit number and is provided by ATC or radar information facilities. It's called squawking a number. Imagine a duck sending out a squawk, letting other ducks know who and what it is. Except for the three recognized emergency transponder signals. Squawking 7700 tells radar that you have an emergency of some kind. 7600 means you've lost comms, and 7500 means the plane has been hijacked. In MH370, the transponder was off. No one squawked any emergency code. Yes, transponders can fail and cause faulty information to be sent to radar and ATC, so the pilot must have the ability to reduce confusion by switching it off. But this can be abused by those who wish to literally fly under the radar. In Africa, we have many pilots who switch the transponder off, then fly low to deliver contraband like diamonds or arms across borders. Transponders are on an electrical circuit that could be faulty or cause a fire, so you want a pilot to be able to flick the switch off where required. ACARS, on the other hand, is a different matter. It stands for Aircraft Communications Addressing and Reporting System. It's used as a system to track major movements in a flight, like a plane leaving the gate or the apron when it takes off from the ground and when it returns to a gate. This system passes data directly to receivers, which can feed information back, allowing the flight management system to be updated in the air and allows pilots to evaluate weather conditions, for example. But this is not just a flicked switch. It entails a process in a certain order and is not a normal procedure. A pilot on this Boeing would have had to stand up to switch off ACARS. The primary ACARS and MH370 was switched off, but the NMOSAT secondary system continued. So whomever it was who was doing the switching did not realize there was a secondary system, and if they did know about it, they must have known data was limited, which means it would be impossible to pinpoint the Boeing at an exact location on Earth. Don't you agree that these facts alone imply whoever took control of the doomed flight was a highly experienced pilot? Usually hijackers want information to emerge from a plane, and bombers don't care about flying it into the blue yonder, as we know from the host of incidents over decades. Basically, there is no single case of a terrorist doing this without comms of some sort. Then let's look more closely at the route. It was complex compared to a normal commercial flight, particularly at night. Turning steeply at least three times, making sure to avoid Indonesia, flying accurately precisely between Malaysia and Indonesia, then passing north of Banda Aceh and heading into oblivion. So this is the sensitive part of this episode. Who were the pilots that early morning on March 2014? In command was 53-year-old Captain Zahari Ahmed Shah from Penang, who'd been flying since 1981 when he joined Malaysian Airlines as a cadet. By 1983, he became a second officer and was promoted to captain of Boeing 737-400 airliners in 1991. Captain of the Airbus A330-300 in 1996 and captain of Boeing 777-200s in 1998. His total experience was 18,365 hours. The co-pilot was 27-year-old First Officer Farik Abdul Hamid, 
who joined Malaysian Airlines also as a cadet pilot, but in 2007. Then he became a second officer of Boeing 737-400s two years later, after flying as the first officer on Boeing 737-400s and Airbus A330s in 2012, he trained to be a first officer on board Boeing 777-200 aircraft. He was far less experienced, with 2,763 hours total flying time. Because of Malaysia's notorious cockpit resource management issues, the co-pilot would have deferred constantly to the captain, unlike where I fly, for example, where you fail tests if you don't question the captain's decision-making. And flight MH370 was Farik Abdul Hamid's final training flight. The next he was supposed to take was an exam. So that means he would have been even more sensitive to the captain's commands than usual. Yes, it's the captain Zahari Ahmed Shah who's been scrutinized the most closely since the crash. There are salacious stories about his philandering and the fact that his wife was about to leave him taking their two children. There were strange conspiracies whirling about that he had become politicized and had flown the plane off track to kill mainly Chinese on board to embarrass the Malaysian government and died in the crash so that his children, who he doted on, could receive the life insurance package. Others who knew him well scoffed at these stories, saying there were certain well-trained hijackers had seized the aircraft. The only problem with this is no one claimed responsibility afterwards, at least no credible claim. There is no doubt that the plane flew at least seven hours, and more likely over eight, in a southwesterly direction into the Indian Ocean, thousands of miles off Western Australia. Once fuel starvation caused the engines to switch off, the Boeing could have glided another 100 kilometers, depending on high-level winds. So let's go back to that transponder and ACAR switch off. What communication exists at the time? After receiving his assigned frequency, Shah said, Good night, Malaysian 370. His voice has been confirmed. Beijing was particularly incensed after the airliner vanished because 122 of the 239 people on board were Chinese. Beijing had experienced terror attacks in its western regions. Could extremists have been behind this vanishing aircraft? If so, why was there no claim afterwards? It's believed whomever was flying switched off the air compression system and at 33,000 feet, what's known as useful consciousness lasts only a few seconds. The decompression forces all oxygen out of your body and passengers would have passed out and died within three minutes. Pilots have a separate oxygen supply. Once everyone is dead, whomever was flying could access the spare oxygen cylinders stored in the plane's rear. That would have provided a few more hours and if the pilot knew no radar would track them after Banda Aceh, they could descend to below 12,000 feet and then breathe normally. Curiously, this would have reduced the flight distance significantly as the air density is much higher at lower altitudes. So one of the possible results is that the search and rescue conducted months later may have been too far south. We just don't know. Let's turn to the Malaysian authorities. Their response was shambolic, to put it mildly. The accident report found that one of the batteries on the plane's flight data recorder had expired in 2012 and no one had bothered to replace them. It found that the supervisor in charge of Malaysian air traffic was asleep on the job and had to be woken up when it became clear the plane was missing, which would have been a disaster for survivors. In fact, it took five hours for Malaysian authorities to realize they had a crisis. The first Malaysian search aircraft took off 10 hours after the plane was officially registered missing, which is incredibly slow by modern standards. Malaysian and Vietnamese air traffic controllers could barely understand one another, and the Malaysians failed to respond at all to the first emergency call from the Vietnamese. 
The language of aviation is English, but the controllers could barely speak the language, let alone each other's. The Malaysian military did not like to speak to their civilian ATCs, and it emerged much later that the Malaysian military radar had tracked the plane. Another example of an official culture of turgid secrecy impacting civilians' lives. The disappearance revealed one failed system after another, and the airline was virtually bankrupted later when they allowed their flight from the Netherlands to pass over the eastern Ukraine, leading to the shooting down of MH17. I've covered that in a previous episode. MH370 was missing, and the first reaction by the Malaysians was bluster and obfuscation until Beijing actually threatened Kuala Lumpur. Families have been treated abysmally by this airline and by officials who seem to be doing everything in their power to save their own skins instead of understanding the catastrophe and reacting with compassion. So Malaysian Airlines issued a media statement at 0700 hours 24 Malaysian time on the morning of the 8th of March 2014, one hour after the scheduled arrival time of the flight at Beijing. And it only stated that communication with the flight had been lost by Malaysian ATC at 0240 and that the government had initiated search and rescue operations. Well, once again, Malaysian aviation authorities couldn't get the facts straight. Contact was technically lost at 0121 in the morning, three minutes after the final report from Captain Shah when the transponder and ACARS shut down. An entire year later, in January 2015, the Director General of the Department of Civil Aviation in Malaysia, Azruddin Abdul Rahman, pronounced that the status of Flight 370 would be changed to accident, and they presumed all aboard had perished. Two more years passed, and it was January 2017 before the formal search and rescue was launched in the Southern Ocean. This turned into the most expensive search operation in aviation history and was suspended after yielding no evidence of the aircraft other than some marine debris on the coast of Africa and the islands. It cost $155 million, with Malaysia coughing up 58% of the total cost, Australia 32%, and China, despite its citizens being on board, a measly 10%. The report also concluded that the location where the aircraft went down had been narrowed to an area of 25,000 square kilometers by using satellite images and debris drift analysis. But over the past six years, debris definitely linked to MH370 has washed up, and eventually at least 20 pieces have been positively ID'd as coming from the plane's registration 9 Mike Mike Romeo Oscar. The most important piece from my point of view was the starboard flaperon, or trailing edge control surface, found on a beach in Réunion. The serial number you see was found, and French officials said it was with certainty that the flaperon came from MH370. The flaperon was in good shape and hardly damaged, which is not consistent with the plane crashing at high speed into the ocean. Yes, it could have been torn off the plane as it went into a dive at extremely high speed, but unlikely. I say that because the linkages were hardly damaged and it appeared that the flaperon was actually deployed, allowing the plane to fly slowly. Parts of the right stabilizer and wing were found off the coast of Mozambique a year later. In 2016, South African archaeologist Niels Kruger found a grey piece of debris on a beach near Mossel Bay that had an unmistakable partial logo of Rolls-Royce, the manufacturer of the engines. It's now believed that was a part of the engine cowling of MH370. And then shortly afterwards, the outboard flap from one of the wings was found in Tanzania and others on the east coast of Madagascar. But where is the main fuselage? Where are the bodies? What happened? We have enough information to make an informed guess, reducing flagrant speculation. A highly trained pilot who knew the air routes around Malaysia like the back of his or her hand 
had taken control by hand and flown adeptly through the islands in order to hide their crime in the depths of the ocean. Why? What would push someone to hide evidence like this? Who had the most to lose? It wasn't a terror attack, it wasn't a bomb or hypoxia killing everyone on board because the autopilot would have flown towards Beijing. It wasn't a technical fault because the plane kept flying. Who had the most to gain from downing an entire airliner for purely selfish reasons? At some point in the future, this airliner will be found. I believe it's lying mostly intact on the ocean floor because it was flown delicately onto the surface, like the miracle on the Hudson, but for the wrong reasons. Yes, that's my informed speculation, so forgive me that little indulgence. When MH370 vanished, we asked a simple question. What of the effect? How could a multi-million dollar airplane with 239 people on board simply vanish in the age of GPS which tracks every move? I filmed the documentary series in the Namibian desert and we had a satellite phone which tracked my every move for a measly $250. That's for two weeks. So why don't planes worth hundreds of millions of dollars have this tech on board? Why is there no system embedded in modern airlines that tracks the machine in real time all the time? This is one of the big changes after the terrible disappearance. Automated transponders are being incorporated in modern jetliner design. Flight recorders can't be switched off. Real-time tracking is mandatory. For aircraft manufactured after 2020, cockpit voice recorders will be required to record at least 25 hours of data to ensure that all phases of a flight are recorded instead of the last two hours which presently takes place. Aircraft designs approved after 2020 will need to incorporate a means of recovering the flight recorders or the information in them before the recorders sink below the water. The new regulations do not require modifications to be made to existing aircraft, however. When Air France Flight 447 plunged into the Atlantic in 2009, there was a call to increase the battery life of underwater locator beacons for a month to far longer because conducting a search and rescue over an ocean takes months if not years. So now it's more difficult for a good pilot to send him or herself to Hades by turning the plane to the southwest after killing everyone else on board because the evidence will literally emerge from the deep. But the real cause isn't Kuala Lumpur. The Malaysian government wriggled like worms on a hook throughout this catastrophe. And when we find the wreckage, which I hope happens one day, whomever is still alive as bereaved family are going to demand largesse. Lies and deceit in aviation will eventually be revealed because behind everything we do when we fly, laws of physics are pure and unadulterated. This has to be one of the more terrible accidents in history, and the pain and suffering of the families is actually beyond understanding. How can they resolve the deaths when we don't know much about anything beyond 0100 hours 19 minutes on the morning of the 8th of March 2014? Look at the time. The podcast is over. Please rate us on iTunes and head off to the website planecrashdiaries.com where you can post a comment or send a message. So, in the meantime, masks on, Social distance, aviate, navigate, communicate safely. Goodbye.